0: be Let's uh, take a minute here before we look at and just, if you would, silently pray, prepare your heart to look at God's word today. Prepare your mind to look at God's word. We're going to be looking at a couple of tricky passages this morning and going pretty deep. So pray that you uh, are able to focus and see what God's word has to say. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning here to look at your word. And Father, I pray that we would, we would just be able to recognize in this moment that we are to stop. That we're here this morning On the Lord's day, stepping out of the work that we have to do throughout the week and the responsibilities that we have to do throughout the week to be fed, to worship you, to grow. And so, Lord, I pray that we would rejoice that we can do this. Lord, I pray that we would long together, together with our brothers and sisters, recognizing that we're all imperfect. We're all struggling and failing, but we are all striving by the the grace of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. We're all striving to live according to your word. We all have the same desire and the same goal, which is to obey you, our King, with our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged as we think about that together as we recognize that that we are here together, united by what Christ has done for us. And we're united by what we long for, which is to live for Christ. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, may we come with humility, longing to grow, longing to be encouraged and fed, longing to be shaped. And as we think about the disciples here and the moment that they're going through, And we recognize that we are their descendants. We are still in this world. You have still not returned, Jesus. So what are we to do with ourselves now? Help us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John 20. John 20, we're gonna pick up where we left off last week. We were looking at the story there, John 20, 19 through 23. And we're going to pick up this week looking at verses 22 and 23. Um, there is an outline in the bulletin, and I would recommend that you keep that in front of you. Um, this is, uh, we're, we're going to, to, to be digging into some passages that have uh, a, lot of, a lot of discussion about how you interpret them. And so you want to keep that outline with you. But first off, let's get ourselves back into the story here. Last week, we looked at the first part of this, and there we focused on the peace that Jesus brings to his followers. You remember they were there, they were afraid, they're in this locked room, and he shows up and he says, Peace be with you. And we spent last week looking at that beautiful declaration of victory peace be with you. It is not a peace that is connected to our circumstances as we saw by going back and looking in chapters 14 and 16 at what Jesus had said there about peace. It is is a peace that is connected to our relationship to Jesus himself, who made it possible for you and I to be at peace with God. And he made it possible for you and I to be at peace even in this fallen world. So not a peace that's connected to our circumstances, but a peace that is connected to who Jesus is and our relationship with him. But that was only the first part of the passage. It leads to the question, what are the disciples supposed to do now that they have peace? Now that they have the peace that Jesus has brought to them, what do the disciples do? Are they supposed to, is this the time to retire? Is everything done? No, no. No, Jesus comes to them when they're afraid, tells them that they have peace, and now he tells them what? He says, so I am sending you. Now that you have peace, now that I have brought this, what's next? So I am sending you. And so here we come to verses 22 and 23, which again, these are two verses that have a lot of discussion around them, around how to interpret them. You may disagree with some of the things that I say today. It's possible a lot of great people come to different conclusions about what verse 22 and verse 23 mean. So we want, to, we want to approach these verses with humility. But what I ultimately want us to see, keep this in your mind. We're going to look at verse 22 and what it means. We're going to look at verse 23 and what it means. But keep in the back of your mind the whole time, what's the point of this whole story? So we can't lose sight of the point of this whole story as we try and look at what verses 22 and 23 mean. So we're going to read the passage. We're going to lay our foundation by talking about how Jesus makes a parallel between how the Father sent him and how he's sending the disciples. And then we're going to look at these two things that he says. So verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, so first, let's look at the mission of the disciples here. Now that they have peace, they are to go. And Jesus connects his mission to their mission. Just as God sent him, they are also being sent as well. I made a similar point about this a couple of weeks ago when, I, when we preached the story of Mary Magdalene there at the tomb. Do you remember what Jesus did there at the tomb with Mary Magdalene? He sent her to tell the disciples what she had seen. And we ask the question, why would he have had to do that? And the answer, of course, is he didn't have to do that. He didn't need Mary to go on his behalf and be his messenger. There's an intentionality there. And what we're seeing in this whole section is we're seeing a massive shift in God's working here on earth. It will be through the followers of Christ that God works until Jesus returns. There's a massive shift. No longer is Jesus in physical form going to be walking around and, and visiting cities and preaching and teaching. No, that time is past. He's ascending to the Father as the King, and who is going to be walking around? Who is going to be the voice of Jesus? It's going to be his followers. And so we see right away, even in the fact that he sends Mary to do this, there's a shift in what's happening. And so now he's telling the disciples the same thing. So I am sending you. Now is your time, disciples. But he makes this comparison to as the father sent him. Now here is how some people explain this parallel between Jesus' mission and our mission and how the Father sent him. They emphasize this. They say, look what he did here on earth. He healed the sick. Everywhere he went, he worked miracles. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. And that is what John is telling the disciples here. They are meant to go out into the world as well and heal the sick and work miracles and bring the kingdom of God into the world here. So we could summarize it this way. One person said, Jesus deliberately makes his mission the model of ours. Thus the church should define its task in terms of its understanding of Jesus' task. And since he manifestly included healing the sick, helping the needy, and preaching to the poor, our mission must do no less. And so what's happened from that is you see a a, a focus... That, that primarily focuses on miraculous healing, that primarily focuses on social issues for the poor. And that is to be the focus of our mission. And so they make that parallel. Of course, we're not heartless people, don't hear that, who say you shouldn't care for the sick and you shouldn't care for the poor. We're reminded in John 14, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will they do because I'm going to the Father. But what we have to say is this, Jesus was not sent, the purpose of his mission was not primarily to heal the sick or to work miracles or to preach to the poor. That was not what he primarily did. Those things played a vital part in his mission. Those things were signs of who he was in his mission, but they were not the mission, were they? They could not have been. While he was healing in Galilee, he was not healing in Jerusalem. This was not the mission. In the Gospel of John, the mission of Jesus has always been clearly explained. Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. Do you remember what Jesus warned the Jews? What would happen to them? They would die in their sins. And look what Jesus says to the disciples in this section, in the very next words. What does he speak about? He speaks about the forgiveness of sins, What did Jesus come here? What was the mission? The mission was eternal life, forgiveness for sins, a renewal of the broken relationship between God and his people. We are talking about peace with the creator. That is the primary focus of Jesus' mission. So the signs, the miracles, the healing, they they point to who Jesus is They show God's compassion and care. They show ultimately how He was able to complete the actual mission that He was here for. We think in too small of terms when we only think about the temporary. When we only think about the immediate. When we only think about our physical circumstances. We are thinking in too small of terms. We're not thinking big enough. Because God is looking beyond this to eternity, to forever. And so what is Jesus saying here? As the Father sent Him, He is sending His disciples. I think there are two parts to this. First, I do think we are to model ourselves after Jesus' work here on earth in this way especially. Just as Jesus did not come to do his will but to do the will of the father so his disciples are being sent not to do their will but to do the will of their king again he is sending them out they need to understand they are not taking the initiative in going out they're being sent with a message and so just as the just as Jesus While he was here, he said, not my will be done, but yours. Disciples, when you go out, you are to live for the will of your King. As Jesus lived a life of obedience to the Father, disciple, you are being sent out to live a life of obedience to your King. He sets the terms. And then secondly, we are sent for the purpose of God which is still forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with the Creator, the Father Himself. This is what you and I are being sent for. Again, you see it from verse 23. Even if there's different ways that we interpret that passage, the focus of that passage is still what? Forgiveness of sins. What do we see the disciples go out and do? They preach the forgiveness of sins. And so as the Father sent the Son, and He came and He obeyed and did the will of the Father, and He focused, He did not turn aside from His goal. And what was His goal? The cross. He did not turn aside from it. He he came not for an earthly kingdom, but He came to defeat sin and death. And now that sin and death have been defeated, the mission continues with the disciples who are to go out and to proclaim that forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ alone. As Paul says, he knows nothing but what? Christ and Him crucified. That's the focus. That's the mission. Okay, with that in mind, that leads to verses 22 and 23. There are two things that Jesus tells the disciples to encourage them about the mission that they are being sent on. That's why he says this. You and I might wish he was a little clearer in his encouragement, but he was not. So we walk through. The First encouragement is in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And of course, the immediate question is, is this, what, what happened here? And how is this related to the Pentecost story in Acts? D- did they receive the Holy Spirit in this moment? Or, did they... or were these two different manifestations of the Spirit? Or was this foreshadowing? So let me read a paragraph from D.A. Carson's commentary just to, to give you a glimpse of how this verse has, has been discussed. Many take this as some sort of actual impartation of the Spirit, but define things in such a way as to allow room for Pentecost. For Calvin, the disciples are here sprinkled with the grace of the Spirit, but not saturated with his full endowment of power until Acts 2. Westcott thinks the power of new life is bestowed here, and power for ministry is in Acts. Bruce seems to favor the reverse of that one. By appealing to the Targums, Aramaic paraphrases of the Hebrew Bible, both Neophyte and Onkelus. On Genesis 2-7, Wojciechowski proposes that by Jesus' exhalation, the disciples received the gift of the Word, including the gift of tongues, which was then not manifested until Pentecost. M.M.B. Turner envisions two comings of the Spirit. John 20-22 is the complement and fulfillment of 17-17-19. And Acts 2 as the fulfillment of the Paraclete promise. And many others think of some sort of preliminary endowment in anticipation of Pentecost. So there's a few options for you. I would encourage you to go digging yourself on this. It is a fascinating question. Another interpretation, and this is the one that I think is the most compelling, is that Jesus is symbolizing and foreshadowing here. The Pentecost, he is foreshadowing Pentecost, and by breathing, John is using symbolism to emphasize that Jesus is the one who sent the Holy Spirit and he did it so the disciples can fulfill their mission. Again, I could be slightly wrong on that. But I really want to make sure that what we do is we catch the important point here. The important point is something I think we can all agree on. However we answer the question... About what happened with the Spirit here and exactly what the timing of events were and the details of it. We need to to know the point that John is making. As the disciples are being sent by Jesus, the encouragement is that Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit. As they are being sent, to obey and do the will of their king, Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit. And there's two things about that to highlight. One, Jesus is the one who breathes and sends the Spirit. This is another beautiful declaration of who Jesus is. John is using beautiful language here to highlight something biblical. The one who can breathe, exhale, and say, receive the Holy Spirit, who does that? God does that. That's what God does. We see God's power. We see His creative power. We see His providential power throughout Scripture when God breathes. The breath of God is a powerful image of His power. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. Job, Job actually loves to talk about the breath of God. He does it in numerous places, highlighting his power. Here's two of them. Job 26, 13, by his breath, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Job 33:4, 4, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And here John tells us it is Jesus who breathes. And he connects this to sending the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Do you see what he's doing here? Who is it that is commissioning the disciples to go? Who is it that's standing in this room with the disciples? John, once again, is giving us just another reminder. God is standing in that room, commissioning his disciples to go. God the Son They're not being sent by a mere man. The king that they obey and the king that they are doing the will of, he's not a mere man. He is the eternal son of God. So yeah, be at peace. Even though you are being sent into a world where there is tribulation, even though the message that you are being sent to proclaim is not one that the world is going to want to receive. Disciple, be at peace. Do you know who sent you? God the Son sent you. Fearful disciples, don't fear. God is sending you, and you will not be alone, because the gift of God the Holy Spirit is for you. So also, just know, by the way, that the whole Trinity is highlighted here. The Father, as the Father sent the Son, the Son breathes, symbolizing His deity, and He sends God the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity at work in perfect unity here in this passage. And what are they at work for, guys? They're at work for us now, living in this world. They are at work for the disciples of Christ. The intention is for you and I to live in this fallen world. But to live with the power that God gives us. So, yes, the disciples are being sent as the Son was sent. And that implies suffering. But even that suffering is no reason to fear. Because, one, Jesus is God. And two, you're not alone. You will have God the Holy Spirit. Again, however, we slice the timing of John 20, and I think the safest ground there for us is that he is symbolically showing that the Spirit was sent from him and that he's God, and John is using this biblical imagery that he loves to use, and he's foreshadowing the moment that we're going to see happen. At Pentecost, when the Spirit comes down, because what happens at Pentecost? Before Pentecost, the disciples are still rather fearful. Before Pentecost, they're not actually acting like they're at peace. But what happens at Pentecost? At Pentecost, they begin to preach with power, they begin to proclaim forgiveness of sins. But either way, there's encouragement here for you and I the encouragement for the disciples. And that brings us to verse 23. Verse 22 was tricky to interpret. Verse 23 kind of takes it to another level. One reason for that is that with verse 22, even if you're not sure exactly what the Spirit's doing in that exact moment, it really doesn't change the main point, does it? Whether you decide that there is some manifestation of the Spirit or there's some whatever, it really doesn't change the main point. The main point is Jesus The Son of God sent the Holy Spirit. How you interpret verse 23 could change the main point. And so that's where we have to be careful how we interpret this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So on the surface, what does that sound like? I mean, it seems to be saying that the ability to forgive sins belongs to to the disciples themselves. Which would be incredible, wouldn't it? That He is giving them, because He gave them the Spirit, and because they have peace in the Spirit, He's giving them the authority and the ability to forgive sins. So I want us to look at a few ways that this passage has been uh, interpreted. First, I just want to look at, 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 there's a couple of groups, so I'm going to focus on two groups in history that have taken this passage to say that it is the responsibility of the disciples and then from the disciples to today, the priest or the pastor, it is the responsibility of them to forgive the sins of others. So I want to give you two groups, but they do it in different ways. First is the Roman Catholic Church. Let me read this. On the basis of this text and some others, the Roman Catholic Church has built its doctrine of a priesthood to whom has been committed the power of absolution of sin. In normal practice, this authority is exercised through the confessional. Most Catholics would acknowledge that in the ultimate analysis, it is God who forgives sin, but they would add that God does so in response to the action of the priest so that where the priest absolves, God forgives, and where the priest does not absolve, God allows the sins and judgment to remain. And that forgiveness is required to faithfully partake of the Holy Communion, which in Roman Catholicism is, of course, feeding on the actual body and blood of Christ and imparting salvific grace to you. Also, along with that confession, in the Roman Catholic Church is the need for penance for those things that have been confessed. So it's not merely that those things are confessed and the priest saying you are forgiven, but there are acts of penance that have to be done in order to be forgiven, which is not how the gospel works. These are works that have to be done in order to be justified, which is, of course, very different than what the gospel is. The gospel is by faith alone, not by any works. We receive the gift of the grace of Christ, not because we deserve it. And so the Roman Catholic Church gives the authority to the priests to forgive your sin. And it's built on a a wrong understanding of the gospel. There's a second group that I want to mention as well that also look at this passage and interpret it to explain their practice of confession, and that's the Lutheran Church. Now, there's a big difference between the the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans on this, because uh, there is no penance uh, in the the Lutheran Church, and and forgiveness there is clearly based on the finished work of Christ on the cross, which is a a massive difference. Let's be very clear, that's a huge difference in understanding these two. Uh, The Roman Catholics are not proclaiming the gospel, and and it cannot save whereas the Lutherans are proclaiming that it is Christ's finished work on the cross that forgives you. However, based on this passage, there is a call for a person to provide this absolution. So they, they would begin their service with a, a public and a corporate time of confession where the pastor would call for a time of, of confession and there's a moment of silence for that and then there's a, a confession that's read corporately And then I'm going to read to you a version of this statement that's from the the Lutheran liturgy. Almighty God in His mercy has given His Son to die for you and for His sake forgives you of all your sins. As a called and ordained servant of Christ and by His authority, I therefore forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you see here that forgiveness, it is won by Christ on the cross, but it is given by the pastor to the congregation, the pastor has the authority from Christ in this view to extend forgiveness and absolve the one who is confessing their sin. And they do say it absolves. This is absolution for their sin. I think it's worth pointing out here, I'm not sure that you'd find many, if any, examples of the pastor withholding that forgiveness um, in the public service. You, you can request private confession as well, and you can receive Forgiveness that way And I think this is important This is from the Lutheran service book If you were to, to do private confession it, It's going to play out this way the, uh, the pastor would say From the Lutheran service book Do you believe that my forgiveness Is God's forgiveness And the one confessing would say yes And the pastor would say In the stead and by the command Of my Lord Jesus Christ I forgive you all your sins In the name of the Father And of the Son And of the Holy Spirit Amen. So the question is, is that the correct application of this passage to do something like that? And I'm going to argue it's not. First off, the most compelling reason for saying that Jesus was not giving the disciples the ability to forgive sins and absolve people of their sin in the way that either the Roman Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church describes it is because you don't ever see the apostles doing that. That's not what they do. You don't see them acting this way in the whole of the rest of the New Testament. What we do see is that it is God alone who forgives sin. In fact, this is, by the way, this is part of how Jesus, just, just so we can be clear, even, even if you were to try and handle this rightly, we still have to say that it is God alone who forgives sin. I mean, this is, this is part of how Jesus got in trouble with the Jews when he not only healed the paralytic, but he also forgave his sins. The Jews could be wrong about a lot of things, but they understood something here very clearly. They lost it on Jesus because they understood the principle. They said, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. And what was the blasphemy? They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's right, that's the point. Only God can forgive sins. And frankly, that's what we see from the disciples here. Forgiveness of sins is the focus of their ministry. In fact, so much so that it is kind of shocking that you don't see them providing absolution, personal absolution from themselves, if that's what we were supposed to do, they preach forgiveness of sins constantly and consistently, but they themselves don't forgive people of their sins. And so you have to say, I mean, if the, if the apostles had understood Jesus here to be saying that they were to go out and they were to be proclaiming and, and, and absolving people of their sins, we would have seen this happening. Luke tells us in a parallel passage to this one, he tells us something else Jesus said to the disciples after the cross that I think shines light on this passage. Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. In Luke 24, verses 44 through 49, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witness of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in this city till you're clothed with power from on high. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. And this is, of course, what we would see happen, right? We see in John, He's saying that He's going to send them the Holy Spirit, and then He emphasizes that they'll be forgiving sins. There's this amazing authority. There's this amazing stewardship that He's giving to the disciples. We see something similar, but just slightly different in Luke, where again, He's giving them This stewardship focused on the repentance for forgiveness of sins. And so at Pentecost in Acts, what what happens? The Spirit comes. What do they immediately do? They proclaim Christ. They proclaim what Luke said here Christ and repentance for the forgiveness of sin. We read, uh, Lee read that at the beginning of the service, Acts chapter 2. Listen again to Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they had heard this and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So here they are. Peter has preached to them Christ. They are cut to the heart. And they look at Peter and they say, what shall we do? I just want to say this would have been a perfect moment. For Peter to say that he forgave them on behalf of Jesus Christ. But he didn't. What did Peter say? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, I forgive you in the name of Jesus. He says, repent and you will be forgiven. In the name of Jesus. This is the stewardship, an amazing stewardship of the gospel that is given to us. And I do think that's what John is getting at with the disciples. That this is the moment where his followers will be his representatives and his ambassadors here on earth. And they will be given a great stewardship. And that stewardship will include the stewardship of forgiveness, the stewardship of the gospel. So if we don't ever see the New Testament church forgiving sins, is there a way to understand verse 23 here and what it's saying, if you forgive and you withhold forgiveness? I think so. This is an area where, again, I think we we have to be humble we have to recognize that the rest of Scripture doesn't support the, the initial reading of this verse, and so what do we do with that? Well, let's walk through this. The phrase is about being forgiven and having forgiveness withheld. It is helpful to know that those are in the perfect tense in Greek. Of course, that's only helpful if you know Greek. And so that probably clarifies nothing for most of us. But if you do some research, you realize that that means this passage can be interpreted saying that the person they forgive has already been forgiven. And in fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, you'll see that is how they translate this. And so the idea here then would be that the disciples are not necessarily forgiving, but the disciples are declaring the forgiveness that has already happened the forgiveness that has already taken place. And we do see examples of that kind of judgment in the New Testament. We see it from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There is a great stewardship given to the church. We see it from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, Which, interestingly enough, that parallels what Jesus is saying, right? He's saying, I'm gone, so I'm sending you into the world. But now back to Peter, not back to Paul. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders?" Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is also what Paul calls Titus to command the elders in Crete to do. Titus is to go and he's to appoint elders in every city. And one of the main functions, if you read through the short little letter to Titus, one of the main functions of the elders is to protect the flock by expelling false teachers by expelling those who are are dividing the church. John himself gives criteria by which to judge whether somebody is a brother or not in 1 John. 1 John, he says in chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if you take that and you recognize that we can interpret the passage we read today to say, if you forgive someone, they have been forgiven. That is, that is a, something that has already happened that's continuing. Then we can understand this idea that we are meant to steward the gospel. As we saw in these passages here, the church is meant to, to be a steward of the gospel message. I would argue we're seeing here a call for the disciples to obey Jesus by being sent to proclaim Christ, through the power of the Spirit and then preach the gospel of forgiveness for sins through repentance and then also by the power of the Spirit to steward that gospel (laughs) forgiveness in the church. And that's actually what we see happen going into Acts. We see the Spirit come. We see preaching. And what is the preaching focused on? Repentance for sins through the work of Jesus Christ what comes from the preaching of repentance for sins through the work of Jesus Christ, the church. And with the church, what comes is shepherding. And with that comes the stewardship of the gospel, the responsibility laid upon the followers of Christ. So who do we ask for forgiveness from then? You ask it from God. You ask for forgiveness from God. However, the church has the responsibility to steward that gospel. And if we see those who are professing that they have asked forgiveness from God, but they have not truly repented, they are not growing in Christ, they're not putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we have a responsibility from God to say, You're not a believer. A believer would change. A believer would grow. Now, a believer isn't going to be perfect. But a believer doesn't just simply live in their sin, comfortable with it, doesn't just defy God. They don't reject the gospel. And at that point, the followers of Christ have a responsibility to not even eat with such a one. So I think that's probably the way we would want to understand this passage. And I know that, that was a deep dive and I would encourage you, you ought to go and do some reading, research yourself, but we're not quite done yet. We're gonna close with this because I want to make sure that we don't forget just because we had to go deep on verses 22 and verse 23. You can't forget that's not the main point of this. the the way we interpret verses 22 and verse 23 are not the main point of verses 19 through 23. And that's what we want to see. Sometimes we we can do that, right? Sometimes we can can find a passage and, and either A, that passage is so compelling to us that we forget everything around it, or B, that passage is so interesting to us that we just go super deep on it and we just get it. Get really tied in and focused on that one verse. And we kind of forget. Oh, yeah, that that's not the main point of what we're we're actually looking at here. So let's step back again and let's look at verses 19 through 23 and let's ask, what is Jesus doing here in this moment? And here's the answer He is encouraging fearful disciples. God the Son, the resurrected King, is encouraging and sending his fearful disciples. And now we see that he has done that with three things. He is encouraging him and sending them with a declaration that peace has been given to them. Guys, peace has been given to you. And it can't be taken away, and it's not connected to your circumstances. It is connected to the fact that Jesus has saved you from your sins, given you a new heart, called you his own. Peace is yours. It's right there. Take it. Remember we talked about last week when we looked at Deuteronomy and the picture of Moses saying, I set before you life and death. Choose life. Jesus is setting before them peace. It's theirs. I give it to you. Follower of Christ, take it. Hold on to it. Peace is yours. Yes, you're going to be in a world full of tribulation. But guess what? Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And then he did that. And then he showed back up and said, here's your peace. It's in me and a relationship with me. So that's the first thing he does. The second thing that he does here is the gift of God, the Holy Spirit to be with them on their mission. They don't just have peace. They have the Holy Spirit with them. And guess what? You can't get rid of him either. He doesn't leave. He is with you. You will be able to be faithful to the Lord. I made the distinction last week and it is worth making again. You will be able to do the will of Christ and be faithful in this world. That is not the same thing as saying you will be able to do the thing you want to do for Christ. It is not the same thing as saying you will be able to do your will and your desire, but you can do the will of Christ in your life. You can be faithful to Him. You can obey Him. Your circumstances will not keep you from that, not even if you are killed. So, He's given peace. He's given God the Holy Spirit to be your strength. So whenever you go out and, and, and you're ready to, to tell somebody about Christ or, or you have a choice of obeying Christ or following the world, so often... We try to summon up our own strength then, but that's not the moment to do that. The moment now is to trust that the Spirit is with you and step out in faith, trusting Him. Living in faith, trusting Him. Could the conversation go bad? Yes, it absolutely could. Could it be awkward? I mean, I said said a couple weeks ago, I'm pretty sure everybody here that I've known for longer than a month, I've had an awkward conversation with you and it's been my fault. Yes, awkward conversations are going to happen. Could you be killed? Yes, you could. But none of that's going to take away either your peace or the Holy Spirit. And don't those things matter more than anything else? And then third, what's the third way that he encourages the disciples here? They have been entrusted with the stewardship of of the gospel message. They've been given peace, they've been given the Holy Spirit, and they have been entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel message. However we understand, verse 23, it is still a shocking statement. It is a shocking statement that Jesus would say that these men, He would trust them with His message of forgiveness and stewarding that message. What a precious gift. So the larger point here, guys, is that in this moment, as Jesus gets ready to ascend, He has entrusted His followers with the stewardship of the very thing that can save souls and usher people into the kingdom. That's what you and I have. We have a stewardship from Christ as the descendants of the disciples and we see what they did with it. So have confidence, Christian. Not confidence in yourself, first and foremost. Now your confidence can grow as you get more familiar with speaking about Christ, as you get more familiar with Christ and with the Word. Our confidence can grow, and praise God for that. We call that maturing, right? At some point, we get off the milk, and and we get into the meat, and we mature, and we grow. But guys, our confidence, no matter how mature you are in Christ, and I think anybody here who's been a Christian and is mature in Christ would tell you, no matter how mature you are, you will still struggle with fear, and you will still struggle with pride, and you will still struggle with uncertainty. And your confidence will waver. In fact, your confidence at the moment that you are unexpected, just not expecting it, your confidence can just fall apart. When Jesus comes to the disciples, before we see the church begin to grow, he gives them his peace, he gives them his spirit. And from those, he entrusts to them the gospel message. How beautiful is that? Christian, let's find our encouragement there. And how can you? You have been entrusted with the gospel message. And not just that. You've not just been entrusted with it. You've been placed by God where you are. And you've been placed in the lives of the people that you live with and you work with. You're there as an ambassador of Christ, not to do your will, but to do His. I'm going to take a minute here, and we're going to pray. Would you pray about how you will be a faithful steward of the gospel message This week, as you rely upon the peace that Christ gives you and you rely upon the Holy Spirit, would you take a moment right now and would you pray about how you are going to be a faithful steward of the gospel message to somebody? You fill in the blank. Let's take a minute here and just silently pray for that and then we'll take the Lord's Supper.